1: parties that would make Jay Gatsby Blanche blazed a trail through the cinema and publishing worlds and redefined the zeitgeist as he went. The former iconic editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, Graydon Carter, has had the kind of career that can best be described as glittering, a literary patron, film producer and restaurateur, whose brand of reporting also happened to influence a generation of journalists. Prior to his long tenure at Vanity Fair, Carter put his own spin on satire as co-creator of the beloved spy magazine. And in 2019 launched Airmail the weekly dispatch that traverses everything from chateau renovation to foreign reporting and literary criticism. And he isn't stopping there. Graydon is back once again playing host to the stars, teaming up with Warner Brothers CEO David Zaslav to host a dinner and what promises to be one of the most lavish of parties during the Cannes Film Festival. Graydon and Cannes in the spotlight once again, just don't call it a comeback. Uh, When I spoke to him earlier today, he'd just arrived on the Côte d'Azur and I began by asking, him about reclaiming his social crown at Cannes. No, no,
0: no, no. I'm not. I'm neither reclaiming any kind of crown I ever had, and I think Cannes has never gone away. No, it's it. Uh, I left. I left Fanny Fair like almost six years ago, and we've spent a good part of our life since then down in the, in, in, in the south of France. And uh, and I decided uh, my friend David Sazleff, who took over Warner Brothers Discovery, or he runs it. He said, would you like to do a party down there like you did before? And I said, yeah, we'll be there anyway. And so we're going to do it. Now, Granted, these are parties that are so fabulous that if I wasn't the co-host, I would never get in myself.
1: Indeed, that may or may not be true. I think that doth protest too much. But there is also a, a serious side to party throwing. What is the business imperative uh, to a big can party or or an Oscars party or indeed a, a, a Washington correspondence party?
0: Well, we, we make it we don't make it easy to get in. But once, once you get in, we make try to make people feel very comfortable uh, so, David, uh, it's good being, uh, having the host be up front. And so David Zaslav will be up there in the front like two greeters. Just, uh, you know, we're high, sort of high-end maitre d's that night. That's what we are. <laughs>
1: You're being disingenuous in a way, though, because oh, you are no. dealing with no. you're dealing it, with super successful people. You're dealing with yes. uh, you know superstars. You're dealing with some of the richest and most glamorous people in the world, and you're dealing also with a host of people who want to be at the party but can't be.
0: Well, this I know you've been to our thing, our our dinner here many times. With each table, I, what I try to do is build a sort of a, have ten or fifteen separate dinner parties. At each table, so you try to build like a movie star, somebody interesting, and a writer. And you have a good mix of people from Europe, from America, from England. You really are like a maitre d' for, for an evening.
1: Who's your perfect um, dinner party can guest? Well, we've
0: got him coming. Robert De Niro is is wonderful company. The people at the hotel adore him. He's a great movie star and he's got a movie here this 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 year with uh, Martin Scorsese and and Leonardo DiCaprio. So he's like number 1 to me.
1: Talk to me about uh, your vanity fair days because there's a sort of split in opinion uh, about whether you are the co-creator of the satirical magazine Spy and that that is deeply at the heart of who you are as an editor and as a as a journalist. And then, of course, Vanity Fair, in a way, often the antithesis of that, uh, very much venerating the stars that perhaps Spy would have pulled off their pedestals. Uh, which are you and, and how did you go about I mean, was Vanity Fair your perfect job? Was Spy your perfect job? Or did you manage to, to bring them both together, do you think, in one place?
0: Yeah, I think you... Whatever the job you have, you you need to become immersed in that world. Vanity Fair only the the only time we ever put star, ran stories on movie stars was just on the cover, and that was just to get it off the newsstand, because really the only international human currency in the world are the movies. So we would stick in the movie star on it. It was basically like the wrapping on a on a on a on a gift. That once you got through that, it was a very you know serious magazine.
1: In many ways, as you've just pointed out, the ethos behind what Vanity Fair was doing, the ethos behind what Airmail's doing, and the, and indeed the, the readership that, that both would appeal to is quite similar.
0: Well, at a certain point, you know what you know. And that's this has been my life for the last 30 years. So, um, you know, my, my, I feel that if you're an editor, your job is to engage and um, entertain and enlighten uh, the, the reader. Um, sort of the three E's of uh, editing. and But you have to be entertaining. So you're largely in the, whether you like it or not, you're in the service business. And and if you're not entertaining, people won't read you. So you you have to sort of do all three things. And the, the trick is trying to not to be boring.
1: While you were there, um, the Me Too movement sort of erupted. Um, and I wondered if you were... Blindsided by it in the way that many people were. I mean, Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein uh, was a yeah. regular guest at at you know your dinners and many other social events uh, in Cannes, obviously. And and you know, I mean, I, I don't think anyone was queuing to be placed next to him, uh, but at the same time, you know, there wasn't really a sense of the monster that he truly was. When did you realise that that Me Too was something that there was something really serious happening?
0: Well, I had left the magazine before all this started, and, and Harvey, strange enough, he was one of the two people we banned from our dinners here for being rude to the staff. It was Harvey and um, uh, Philip Green. Somehow he got invited one year and was rude to the staff and, in fact, rude to one of the other guests, and I I sort of cut them off from ever coming again. Harvey, strange enough, lived across the street from me in Greenwich Village, literally, right across, he had the house right across the street from me. And he was a decent neighbor. You knew the rumors always. And, but you assumed, I think some people assumed, that part of this was, um, you know, in like the, a version of the old-fashioned uh, casting couch. The things that have come out since are so horrifying. I don't think anybody could have ever imagined it.
1: Do you think that it's, it's a movement that will right itself and, and reach a level that's workable? Or do you think that everything has to change?
0: things will swing out one way uh, for a while and then they'll swing back out another way for a while, which is where we are now. And it'll settle in the, in the center on the better, on the closer to the, the better part of this. Something like Ken Friedman, he, I mean, he was just a, a silent partner in one of my re- restaurants, but his, 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 you know, sins for uh, 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 what they were, were in his own restaurant, the the Spotted Pig, which I had nothing to do with. And Ken was he was a minor character in all in all of this there are much more greater monsters than Ken Friedman
1: Obviously as editor of, of Vanity Fair and, and and now as as creator and, and co-editor of of Airmail you know you're in a position of some power is it appealing to you the power of the job
0: I didn't I try not to ever take myself seriously but I took I take my my work very seriously and when I was younger I felt more comfortable about burning bridges and and yet somehow those bridges managed to heal over the years and but you know if you had something like Spy Magazine I was in my 30s and you know there was a lot of like ugly new money filtering through New York City and that was our subject i'm not it, there there's something people keep asking me say why don't you restart spy magazine and i said well i'm not 36 and angry anymore
1: but it, it, well, it's interesting you say that because um you know vice media buzzfeed Huffington Post, uh, they were all the sort of dawn of new media and some of them, you know, borrowing some of that satirical bent from Spy magazine. But since then, we've seen huge layoffs at at those companies and, and Vice Media declaring bankruptcy this week. Where do you think we are in the sort of magazine media firmament?
0: Spy was like it was a sophisticated sort of astringent cocktail. These were just These were just often, sometimes either mean or like sort of too gonzo for somebody my age at the time. The the legacy magazine business, I think, is 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 going to have a, a rough future. I think that young people really love magazines. They love magazines with high production value, and I think there'll be a an appetite for those.
1: And would you say that there is? I mean, you know, during Trump, a lot of people were shocked and horrified that that he managed to become president at all, but a lot of um. The, the, the blame for that, if you will, was, was sort of laid on the shoulders of a, a kind of smug, liberal elite, and who also failed to understand voters' uh, righteous anger. Would you say that in a way, Airmail has decided to carry on uh, that same lifestyle platform?
0: Well, first of all, I, I've known Trump for 35 years. I was I did the first major national uh, uh magazine story on him and i spent three weeks with him i thought he was a fraud then i thought he's a fraud now i did notice at the time that he had very small hands <laughs> small for his body and so at spy we, we sort of borrowed a trick from private eye and came up with sort of funny epithets for people and with trump we called him a short-fingered Bulgarian, which absolutely drove him nuts and he Right up into the time he ran for presidency, he would send me photographs of his hands and say <laughs> they, they they didn't look too small to him, and I'd say, "Well, they do look small to me and that and it became part of the debates. It still seems to dog him, and he in past, he's threatened to sue me at the same time he invited me to one of his wet two of his weddings so it's he's a I never thought he'd be this. I knew he'd be venal. I didn't think he'd be this evil, and I don't think he will get back in again. I think the country is too aware of who he is, and fifty percent in the middle—they're going to make the decision. And I think they—they're sick of him. They're sick of his. They're sick of the past. They say that everything that he talks about is is in the past. I think they're sick of his his moral fiber and his his whining. Nobody likes a a, a victim. I do think Joe Biden is too old, but he's going to get my vote.
1: Um, It does seem incredible that a a nation like America can have a system whereby someone who's just recently been found guilty of sexual assault can still... Go ahead and enter a presidential race. I mean, even for us over here with our party gates and so on, there is still a sense that we can take the moral high ground. When
0: when Boris Johnson is the moral high ground, it says a lot about what's going on in the United States right now. I mean, this never would have happened pre two thousand and sixteen. If this was uh, two thousand and thirteen, uh, that person could not run for the presidency. I mean, they're they're allowed to, but nobody would 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 buy it. You know, it doesn't take much to you know a little bit of poison can uh, ruin a lot of uh, water in a well. And and Trump is that poison. And it'll take a while before, you know, it drains off and, and replenishes itself. You'll have a different country in seven years.
1: But I do believe that um, that you have mounted on your wall, either in your home or office, I'm not sure, uh, but a collection of um, the many tweets that, that Donald Trump has directed toward you. I mean, you know, if...
0: It was my wall at Vanity Fair, and I blew up all the tweets. He had, like, 49 of them. And he would call me, like, sleepy, dopey, grumpy. It basically, he was just going through the, the, the seven dwarfs in, in terms of the adjectives he was calling me. He'd call me a loser, and he says, even his wife knows he's a loser. So I had these all blown up, and I had them all along my wall at Vanity Fair. And I still guess it's the only wall he ever built, really. And he, it, they're in storage somewhere. I have no idea where they are. But I love the fact that I can drive him crazy.
1: Are you surprised that there isn't a Democratic candidate that's perhaps, you know, more energetic, more exciting uh, than Joe Biden?
0: Well, look, I think Joe Biden is a phenomenal president. I think he's done an extraordinary job. I don't think he should run. And I think he should have said, OK, I'm going to quit while I have a lead and let the field find itself. You're not going to find the candidates who can take his place. Unless he steps out of the way, and he's just too old.
1: Graydon, there's been a, a lot of seismic societal change in the last decade or so, you know, including as we talked about a moment ago, Me Too, and you know, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, and and there was criticism thrown at you and at Vanity Fair uh, over that period. First of all, with Jeffrey Epstein because of the Vicky Ward case and and this um, suggestion. First of all, Vicky
0: Ward. And personally, you go to you go to war with the journalists you have. This was a, I was the first person ever to do a story on Jeffrey Epstein, nobody on the and And at the end, the reporter came in with new information that she thought uh, that was solid. And nobody, not my legal team, not the fact checkers, trusted her. And she had she could have taken the story elsewhere, but she did. not I, I don't think I missed anything.
1: Tina Brown mounted a, a sort of summit the other day, which you'll know about in in, in the UK, um, uh, in the name of Harry Evans, and it was spurred by this sense that investigative journalism is uh, dead, and uh, that corporate cowardice is 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 one of the uh, one that's of the great contributors an
0: to that. Non, that's absolute utter nonsense. I think this has been a golden age of investigative journalism. The New York Post, the Washington Post, the New York Times during the Trump administration. The New York Times now, if you look at ProPublica that did all these stories on uh, Supreme Court justice, Clarence Thomas, I think this is an absolutely a golden age of investigative journalism. I don't think it's ever been better.
1: But what do you think is contributing to it being a golden age then? Because the reason I brought up corporate cowardice was, of course... What you did with the Vicki Ward case was listen to the people you have to listen to when you're running a magazine, which is the lawyers yes. and you know the the bureaucrats, if you will, but but you know it's no they're about, not bureaucrats
0: you know, these are this is my staff who i have to, I trusted and I'm worked with for twenty five years. These weren't bureaucrats, so- these were editorial staff members.
1: So that sense of, um, you know, things being dangerous, litiginous, costly is still very much in the ether, particularly when you come to big business It's always like- it's
0: always in the ether. Only a fool uh, runs something that they think uh, libel laws in America are very, are very strict. And I got sued twice. We lost one Roman Polanski and we won one, Mohammed Al-Fayed. But it took uh, a year of work on each law case. And both, the Viad one was based on a really tough, long-form uh, story about him and the way he ran Harrods and how he treated women. So, no, you—you you, if you don't listen to your staff on legal matters, your legal editor, you're a fool.
1: How do you feel about the publishing or the the platforms now that publish, if you will, but don't have that same sense of control over over what they put out there in the world. I mean, you know, we're currently debating the online harms bill here in, in the UK. And do you think that there needs to be a correlation between the restrictions on publishing houses and on social platforms that rely on publishing?
0: Well, if you're, if you're accepting advertising and you're running editorial matter, you're a publisher and the, you should live by the same rules that everybody else does.
1: Let's go back to Cannes then. Speaking of old world, is there a film uh, that you're looking forward to seeing? Will you actually see any films? Because obviously it's a full time business organizing the kind of shindig that you've got in mind.
0: I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of film festivals and I, uh, I purposely did not bring a tuxedo here and you need a tuxedo to get in to see anything. And other than this dinner, that's pretty much it for me for the Cannes Film Festival. I'll see these movies when they come out. I'm looking forward to to um, Marty Scorsese's film and to Wes Anderson's film, but I'll see them in movie theaters rather than on the, on the Grand Palais. It's not my thing.
1: And just finally today, Graydon, we're celebrating the appearance of Martha Stewart, who I'm sure you've come across over the years, um, oh, yeah. on the uh, in Sports Illustrated at 81, uh, swimsuit wearing. And we're asking our listeners uh, what they'd like to be doing at 80. And... Um, you know you're still far off but you've got a decade to go can you think of mm-hmm. what you, would you like you're a big canoeist but do you want to you're still clearly very very uh sleeves rolled up in the world of of journalism and indeed in in the world of films even though you don't like film festivals um what what do you want to be doing at 80 and will you be wearing no. i don't know lycra swim swim shorts
0: no, no, that would never happen ever. No, in fact, my, my bucket list is so short. I mean, my bucket list largely is losing four pounds. I mean, that's that's at eighty, I'd like to be four pounds lighter than I am now, and yet still breathing. And I feel at a great accomplishment. I've got five kids. All I want to do is be around my kids, and and enjoy the these waning years of life.